mother of five in an abusive relationship takes her children and moves away seeking a new life. A year and a half later, a 14-year-old girl would open a familiar door only to be met with a vision from a nightmare. I'm going to tell you what she saw. Prepare for what's coming. This is going to be a dark ride. I'd like to thank you for joining me again on another episode of Darkest Nightmare. I'm your host, Grandpappy. Due to graphic descriptions in this episode, which some might find disturbing, listener discretion is advised. Now let's get right into our story. In July 1979, Sue Sharp along with her five children, left her home in Connecticut after separating from her abusive husband, James. Sue was a Navy wife who'd lived all around the country, following James between his various military assignments. She decided to relocate to Plumas County in Northern California, where her brother Don was residing at the time. Upon arriving in California, she began renting a small trailer formerly occupied by her brother at the Claremont Trailer Village in Quincy, California. The trailer was tiny and cramped, and Sue was soon looking for more room for her family to call home. The following fall, she moved to cabin number 28 in Keddie, California, a rural town in the Sierra Nevada mountains, quite literally in the middle of nowhere. Keddie is a very small town, actually more of a village, as its population has hovered around 100 residents for decades. There is a single road running through the town. The cabin that Sue and her kids had moved into was sparse and a bit ramshackle. However, It was quite a bit larger than the trailer in which they'd been living, and they were all thankful for the additional room. There, in cabin number 28, Sue resided with her 15-year-old son, John, 14-year-old daughter, Sheila, 12-year-old daughter, Tina, and two younger sons, Rick, age 10, and Greg, age 5. John, the oldest child, had a room downstairs in an unfinished basement. There were no internal stairs in the cabin, so John had to use the outside back stairs or the front door to access the main cabin. Otherwise, he was isolated in his room at the ground level. It's important to note that John would normally access the main rooms of the cabin by using the back door directly up the external stairs from his lower-level room, 
And because of this, the family almost always kept the back door unlocked to allow John entry. The interior of the cabin had only two bedrooms, and the youngest boys, Rick and Greg, shared a bedroom at the front of the cabin, which was off of the living room. Sue and her youngest daughter, Tina, shared a bedroom at the back of the house near the kitchen. In February 1981, Sue's oldest daughter, Sheila, age 14, had come to Katie to join the rest of the family after having given birth to a baby in Oregon, which she immediately put up for adoption. Aside from the money Sue received from the Navy, her only other known source of income was a stipend she received from a federal education program from that era. She was literally paid to attend school, which she did, and she was reportedly a good student who maintained a respectable grade point average. Sue was attending Feather River Community College, where she was studying a business trade. Fellow students reported that Sue kept to herself and didn't participate in any social activities, even avoiding coffee breaks with her classmates. Sue was described by those who knew her as a loner. She really only had one close girlfriend, a neighbor woman by the last name of Meeks. Despite her solitary leanings, Sue managed to date several men in the area. She wasn't dating anyone who appeared in any way capable of providing her and her family much of a better life than they already had. The available men in the area tended to be on the seedier side. One of her suitors actually proposed marriage on the first date, but was quickly rebuffed. At some point, Sue had apparently found herself in another abusive relationship, which ended with a loud argument in her front yard sometime in the month of February. On April 11, 1981, around 11.30 in the morning, Sue, Sheila, and Greg drove from the residence of their friends, the Meeks, to pick up Rick, who was attending baseball tryouts in nearby Quincy which was about six miles from Ketty. They happened upon John and his friend, Dana Wingate, age 17, hitchhiking at the mouth of a canyon that ran between Quincy to Ketty. Sheila picked the boys up, and they rode with the family back to Ketty. A couple of hours later, around 3.30 p.m., John and Dana were spotted in Ketty's tiny downtown area. They were hitchhiking back to Quincy in search of a party. That same evening, Sheila had plans to spend the night with the Seabolt family. The Seabolts lived in a cabin a mere 15 feet from the Sharps. Sue remained at home with Greg, Rick, and the boy's young friend, Justin Smart, who was staying at the cabin for a sleepover. Oldest sister Sheila departed from cabin 28 shortly after 8 p.m., leaving her mother alone with the younger children. Youngest sister Tina, who had been watching television at the Seabolt residence, returned home to cabin 28 around 9.30 p.m. after her sister Sheila 
had shown up at the Seabolt's home to spend the night with her friend Alyssa Seabolt. Mrs. Seabolt did not approve of Sue Sharp's parenting skills and would not allow her own children to enter the home of the Sharp's family. But she always welcomed the Sharp children into her own home as she felt sorry for the kids and their vagabond existence. On the morning of Sunday, April 12, 1981, 14-year-old Sheila Sharp woke up in cabin 27, the home of the Seabolt family, at approximately 7 a.m. Sheila had agreed to attend church with the Seabolts, and at around 7.45 that morning, she returned to her family's cabin to get the clothes which she would wear to church. What Sheila saw when she opened the door to cabin 28 was a vision from hell. On the floor of the cabin were three battered and bloody corpses, the closest of which she recognized as her brother John. The one farthest from the front door was covered in a yellow blanket. Sheila was unable to tell who the other two bodies were. She wanted to try to find her little brothers in the front bedroom, but was terrified and ran away from the carnage, screaming back to the Seabolt's cabin. Sheila and Mrs. Seabolt went to the nearest phone available to them at the cabin of their landlord. There they called the Plumas County Sheriff's Office to request help. The Sheriff's Office dispatched a car to the scene during which time Sheila, Mrs. Seabolt, along with her teenage son, Jamie, went back to cabin 28 and knocked on the sharp boy's bedroom window. Jamie Seabolt removed the three unharmed children, the sharp boys and their friend Justin Smart, through the cabin window. After removing the boys from the cabin, Jamie Seabolt then went to the rear of cabin 28 and up the outside stairs and entered the cabin through the back door, which had apparently been left open by the killers. He searched in vain for any more survivors and rejoined the others outside. It wasn't long before the sheriff's office investigative team arrived on the scene. The three boys claimed to have slept through the horror that took place only feet away from them but this was later disputed. In fact, although all three boys claimed to be unaware of anything taking place in the cabin, the boy's friend Justin Smart later said that he saw Sue with two men in the house that night, one reportedly with long hair and a mustache, the other clean-shaven with short hair. One of the men had a hammer, Justin said, Justin's recounting led to the drawing of the initial two suspects. Justin further recalled that John and Dana had entered the cabin at some point and had argued with the two men, and that this led to a violent fight. He said that Tina had gotten out of bed and come into the living room after being disturbed by the argument taking place. She was quickly led out the back door of the cabin by one of the men, arguing with her brother and his friend. The man took her down the stairs, and she vanished 
into the night. Deputy Frank Clement was the first member of law enforcement to arrive on scene. He did a quick search of the cabin and confirmed the gruesome murders. He reported that the murders had been notably violent with blood everywhere. Blood was on the walls, the ceiling, the floors, and the victims. Inside the cabin were the bodies of the three murder victims. Closest to the front door was the corpse of John Sharp. His throat had been slashed. He also had multiple stab wounds to the torso. His head had also been smashed in with a claw hammer. He was lying on his back, hands and feet bound with white medical tape, as well as a white extension cord, one end of which would also be tied to his friend Dana Wingate's lifeless body. The electrical electrical cord ran from John's feet to the feet of Dana Wingate. Dana's hands and feet had also been bound with medical tape, but he appeared to have broken the bonds on both his hands and his feet. Dana's head had also been beaten in with a claw hammer. He had been viciously stabbed repeatedly and finally manually strangled. Sue was bound in a more complicated fashion than either of the boys. She was also bound with medical tape and an extension cord, but was further secured with an additional length of cord which ran between her wrists and her ankles. Sue was lying on her side, nude from the waist down, gagged with a bandana and the panties she had been wearing. Medical tape was looped repeatedly to hold the gags in place. Sue had been stabbed in the throat with a knife so forcefully that the wound penetrated nearly to her spine. She had also been stabbed repeatedly in the chest along with being bludgeoned by a claw hammer. On a table near the victims was a butcher knife and a claw hammer, both soaked in blood. Around 8.45 that morning, Don Davis, Sue's brother, arrived and met with officers in front of cabin 28. He gave the officers details about Sue and the family, including her pending divorce from her husband in Connecticut and how Sue had refused to give her abusive husband the address at which she and the kids were staying. He said that Sue had suspected that her husband had begun sexually abusing their daughters. The sheriff's office went around and did a cursory welfare check of all the cabins in the area to make sure there were no further victims, but none were found. It's at this point that it should be mentioned that many of the reports submitted by law enforcement didn't match up on details, and some seemed to be outright cover-ups to indicate that officers recognized immediately a fact which actually took many hours to come to light, and that was that 12-year-old Tina Sharp was missing, the only member of the Sharp family to be unaccounted for. By midday, the California Department of Justice, based in Sacramento, had a helicopter hovering over Ketty, 
taking aerial photos of the cabin and the surrounding area. One of the photographs is reported to show the killer sneaking out of town by back roads to avoid detection. It was at some point later in the afternoon that police finally discovered that 12-year-old Tina Sharp was missing. It was confirmed that she had been in the house at the time of the murders, but no one had any idea where she might be. This caused the FBI to insert, it, insert itself into the investigation. Tina's disappearance was initially treated as an abduction. A grid pattern search covering a five-mile radius around Cabin 28 was conducted using police canines, but this proved fruitless. It would be another three years before the missing girl would finally be found. Tina's remains were finally discovered on April 28, 1984, in neighboring Butte County by a man seeking to collect bottles to cash in for their small deposits. The man found a portion of a human cranium as well as a human mandible. Also found near the remains were a child's blanket, a blue nylon jacket, a pair of jeans, and an empty medical tape dispenser. In June of 1984, the remains were positively identified as those of Tina Sharp. With the remains of Tina Sharp now found, the Keddie Cabin murders had become a quadruple homicide. Immediately, two main suspects were identified in the case. Marty Smart, who lived only two cabins away from the Sharps, and who was the father of Justin Smart, the friend who had spent the night with the younger Sharp boys and emerged unharmed, as well as ex-convict named John Bobaday, who had known ties to organized crime in Chicago. Smart's wife, who had reportedly left him the day after the murders, claimed in a 2008 documentary that she had always suspected her husband and his friend of being responsible for the murders. She claimed that Marty Smart hated John Sharp with a passion. Marty Smart apparently left Ketty shortly after the murders and went to Reno, Nevada, where he sent a letter to his estranged wife with the following cryptic and some say damning message. I've paid the price for your love, and now I've bought it with four people's lives. You tell me we're through? Great. What else do you want? Marty Smart was also believed to have admitted his guilt in the murders while speaking to a mental health professional concerning supposed post-traumatic stress disorder, which he was actually suspected of inventing in order to gain money from the government. Smart apparently believed that confessing to a confidential therapist would not allow his confession to be admissible in proceedings against him. But that wasn't actually the case where homicide was involved. The therapist later told investigators who had reopened the case that he was shocked that his report of the confession had never been used to secure charges against Smart. But like many other things involved in this case, 
it was oddly ignored. Smart stated reason to the therapist as to a motive for the killings was that Sue Sharp knew he and his wife were having problems. Smart's wife had actually accused him of both physical and emotional abuse. He said that Sue Sharp was trying to intervene in his love life and had been trying to talk his wife into leaving him, just as Sue had left her own abusive husband. Either through gross mishandling of evidence, much of which was inadvertently destroyed or outright corruption, no one was ever charged in the murders at Cabin 28. The Plumas County Sheriff at the time was reportedly a buddy of Marty Smart and had warned him to get out of town. The sheriff resigned only three months into the investigation to take another job in Sacramento and has since retired completely. While the case remains unsolved at this time, it's currently reopened and new leads are being followed with the present sheriff saying that arrests could be imminent. DNA and other investigative tools not available at the time of the murders are being used to process such items as the murder weapons and residue on the bindings of the victims in order to seek new clues. An additional knife and claw hammer, believed to have been used by the murderers, was discovered in a pond by a man using a metal detector. Police say that the claw hammer is an exact match for the description of the hammer supposedly stolen from Smart. That hammer is now being tested for blood and trace DNA residue. How close are they to cracking this? An investigator named Gamber, presently assigned to the now reopened case, says, I don't know, but I know we're closer than we've ever been. The terror and suffering of the murder victims in Cabin 28 is almost too gruesome to imagine, and they demand justice from beyond the grave. We'd like to hope that something like this could never happen again, but knowing the dark side of humanity, as we all do, it's a sure bet that the human monsters who walk among us will never stop sowing the seeds of our next darkest nightmare please do old grandpappy a favor if you like the show please hit the follow button to subscribe to the show and never miss a new episode as soon as it becomes available please tell your friends so that they can listen as well as we discuss the nightmares which haunt our waking hours as well as our sleep On the next episode of Darkest Nightmare, we'll be discussing a cave dive gone terribly wrong, deep underground and underwater, lost in catacombs, which all look the same and with a failing light source and with an air supply which is rapidly dwindling. Death calls in the deep. Thank you for listening. And please join me next time 
for another darkest nightmare.